Hello, everybody, and welcome to a localcast.net special episode. Special because we're actually back in our chairs recording. I am your host, <coughs> Harding, here with the magnanimous Craig Maloney. How are we doing, Craig? Magnanimous? I don't know. I needed are a big word, word of the day. It was. It was big. I needed a big word, and that one came up. <laughs> you never know what's. Calendar. You never know what's going to happen. Whenever you know. So there you go. Anyway, <laughs> how you doing, Craig? I'm doing well. It has been uh, it has been a quite a while since we have done this last one. It is so cast. But if it Lots. makes it makes you feel better, I I, I did put a, a, a calendar item for two weeks from now to try this again. Oh, very cool, very cool. But yes, uh, the world has changed, has it? The world has I mean, changed. It's, it's April, for God's sakes. When was the last one? I guess I really didn't, I didn't look at how how old it actually was. I just knew it had been a while. I think we were just putting away the jingle bells, and now we're putting away the Easter tinsel. Yeah, well, so you know that's 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 good. You know, aiming for a few a year. That's a, that's a nice round, you know, round number there. The um, quarterly update. <laughs> exactly. It's, we're a company, right? We're like a successful company. We need to just have a little quarterly update to our shareholders, tell them how we've been doing, and we're expecting by the next quarter to have another, another episode. I think that works. And probably even more episodes than that. Yeah, I'm hoping to get better about it. Very sorry about it. Um, I've been very, very much hacking on Bookie with like every spare moment that I've got. And uh, we did – I had a couple of personal issues, family issues and stuff come up that kind of – we had some scheduled that that just kept falling through. So uh, hopefully all that's behind us and we can move on and and we can have happy times instead of sad times. Yeah. I mean it's – it's life happens, you know. It just it happens and, and every things come day. about. Yep. Yeah, every so, day there's a new bit of life happening. <laughs> we will not let this prevent us from having more episodes. So let's hop right into this one because we have some uh, impending events to speak about. That is correct. Upcoming is Penguicon, uh, which is happening over at the Dearborn Hyatt in uh, beautiful. Metro Detroit, Michigan. Uh, you are scheduled for a talk, if I'm not mistaken. I am, and I started that today. I actually set up the GitHub repo to start throwing my talk in today. So I, I figured two weeks is a, is, is a good amount of time for me to kind of work this thing through. So yeah, I definitely I'll be talking about using the UE, you know, Yahoo uh, user interface, whatever JavaScript library. Um, for building web applications and kind of compare and contrast that with like a jQuery environment, you know, like the kind of tools and things you would use. Because I've, I've come, come from the jQuery side with all of its, you know, glory. And I have moved on to UE and I'm a big, big fan. One of the big things I did with Bookie over the last six months was to port all the old JavaScript over to UE. And I am a very, very happy camper because of it. Awesome. And uh, we're also, after your bookie talk, after the minds have been blown, we're having the Ubuntu Michigan release party yeah. at 7 o'clock on Friday. Uh, doors will open and promptly close at 8 o'clock because there's plenty of more PenguinCon happening. Yeah, it shouldn't be too bad. I think we tend to overdo it usually anyway. And there there are you know places to go to if you want to keep the conversation going and stuff. But uh, yeah, hopefully this will work out for a good, a good a release party party. And I'm also doing a podcasting talk. Hopefully, I'm going to drag Rick in there so he can provide some pointers and that about how to do a podcast. Because, you know, we we're kind of uh, we kind of know what we're doing. I think. 
Almost. We're putting we're putting on a good front. <laughs> we're pretending very very well. Uh, yeah, no, no, I'm I'm very good at uh, editing uh, Google Docs to and, and adding bullet points. Bullet points are my specialty in Google Docs. Uh, so <laughs> I'll definitely make sure to bring that up during your talk and help support you there. Very cool. And uh, I've also got a po- um, not a podcasting talk, but also the Ubuntu Unity slash twelve oh four precise pangolin update where we can talk about the HUD and all the other wonderful things that have been going on with the precise release cycle, especially all the wonderful testing that's been going on with this, which I'm really, I'm really thrilled about. It seems like it's become stable. It's some good stuff. Uh, There's obviously I'm biased now. So I, I, you know, the whole disclaimer is the fact that I canonical writes my paychecks and all that, but uh, I've been rather impressed with the, uh, the, the work, uh, the test infrastructure, the, I've been running the betas much earlier this release. I I think I actually skipped, um, geez, I skipped a release and then, uh, you know, but recently I haven't gone, I haven't, the last two or three, I haven't updated till after it was final. So, right. Um, I'm still I, on 11.04 on this desktop, so I, I skip. I'm going to be skipping on the desktop, but on the laptop, I've been using 11.10. Yeah, no, I've been using 12.04 on on my side secondary desktop for a long while through the beta cycle. I, I think there were like once or twice I saw on you know in the Twitter land, don't update, this will break today, you know, kind of thing. So I you know I think with that alone, I was able to, to stave off any major breakages, and and it's been pretty good. So and um. Unity seems to be a bit more cleaned up than uh, than it has been, so I'm glad that's coming along. I know we talked about Unity before. We kind of made the case that it's going to be a stage thing, and to really give it a real shot, you have to give it a couple of uh, a few releases before you could really sit down and figure out where things were going. And I think that's really starting to shape out to be true. Yeah, I, I think I th- I'm really happy that they did Unity in 1104. And not try and bring it out in twelve oh four because I think it would have it would yeah. have been disastrous. Yeah, no, no, and so you know, hopefully, you know, people give it a shot. Give it a shot. It's a LTS, so it's definitely one to to get on the upgrade path to. Um, it's one to go on the servers and things. I know I've got. I'm looking forward to pulling my EC2 servers up to it soon. Some of the nice things is that you know now that it's a new release, it's got you know like Postgres nine packages and stuff like that that you have to, you still have to pull in from PPAs. So um, I'm I'm excited for the server side of uh, of that as well. I'm not so excited about upgrading my instances, but I think it's going to be it's going to be a good thing to happen. Oh yeah. So and I've also got on the Saturday I'll have a little one hour bookie mini sprint. Uh, at PenguinCon. So if you're interested at all and you've thought about poking around, uh, now is definitely a great time to get involved. Uh, uh, I spun off a couple of side projects over the last couple of weeks that are booky, but you know things like API and client tools. So they're nice small bits of code that are really easy to get into at an early stage. And so it, it needs everything from help with tests, documentation, new features, and all that. And so if you're a little overwhelmed when you look at Bookie, the main project, uh, now's I'm a great time. Hand up here. <laughs> yeah, no, but see, that, now's a great time because there's two other s- starting up projects trying to split out some of the code so that they can scale and be updated and, and kind of worked on separately. And then tying, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the build services, don't build apps movement. And so Bookie is a big app that I'm working on spinning up the services that Bookie will use to work with. So um, hopefully we'll have some participation and stuff there at PenguinCon and I can get some uh, some people involved.
right. So with that, past events. Um, PyCon happened between our last episode in January, obviously, and um, this episode. So I figured I might as well mention it because there were a couple of cool points that I want to make sure to bring up for everybody. Um, overall, I, it was really – I was out in California this year, which was very different uh, because, uh, you know, it's California. Um, but it was, well, it was strange to be, you know, in March, I was basically eating breakfast outside every day because, you know, Hey, it was really nice out. Um, you know, nice sixties degree weather and stuff very much up my alley. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was really cool. Uh, there's a lot of this, it was great this year because of the social aspect. Um, I, I've gotten to know a lot of people from going and talking at Pi Ohio, um, Ohio Linux Fest. I went to PyCon last year. I follow a lot of people online. And so last year I got to see a few in person. And so this year we kind of like built upon that. And so this was probably the most social conference yet as far as running into people. Um, I actually ran into uh, one of the guys from Ohio Linux Fest who's out in Boston now, happened to be out there at PyCon. It was really kind of funny that, you know, I think of him as the Ohio transferred to Boston, yet here I am in California running into him. So it was a lot of fun for that. Uh, the talks were okay. Um, this year, I didn't, I don't know if it's because I've, I've obviously gotten, I've learned a lot more about Python in the last year or what, but the talks didn't blow me away this year as far as like uh, technical content, or maybe I just picked really bad ones. I'm still working my way through the, all the videos are online. Um, they're on, oh shoot, where is the website this year? It moved. It uh, search for Python or PyCon Python videos and, and should come up right away. But yeah, it uh, used to be on Miro. And yep, nope, they're off of that. Yeah, the, I think the cost of stuff got to be a bit much there. But um, it was it was really cool. A couple of like, like tidbits to just make sure you know if, if you ever use PDB. Um, there was a command I was I have been using PDB, but I did not know about the until command, which is you and that like where have you been all my life you magical little little beast um make sure you learn that one if you use pdb and python much because basically what it does is it allows you to to enter a loop and this loop may happen you know like let's say you're returning 50 rows and you're, you're processing each row and what you want to do is it's like all right i basically want to get to after all these are done right let me go look at what happened after all the 50 you know, loop iterations are done. You can go to the last line of a loop and hit U, and what it do is it'll basically process that loop until it's done. And so if you've ever caught yourself hitting, you know, like next or continue 50 times, it's beautiful um, for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I have been guilty myself of trying to put in breakpoints in that and hoping that it runs and hits that breakpoint, and if it doesn't, then yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, the other thing I, I've definitely started, it's changed my daily Python use is I'm using bpython instead of ipython now. Um, bpython really? convinced me that it's a really, a really nice. The, the, the number one thing that blew everyone in the room away was when you could basically undo like a stack. Like if you're defining a five-line function, you could undo each line of that to jump into the middle of it to change or fix something. Whereas in ipython, you have to basically go redo that function. Um, and so that alone, like really blew people away, but it's kind of cool because that's built in, it with uh, a curses library that I've been peeking at and it's, it's very nice and color coded and the completion is really nice. And so, um, yeah, I've actually changed over to using B Python for my, uh, hundred percent, uh, you know, use for my Python shell. Well, that's pretty cool. By the way, the videos are over at pivideo.org. That, that sounds true. It, it seems like that's where the, 
the hub of all the Python videos are going to be. Yeah, I no. If Ohio is going to be on there as well. Yep, they, they're they're are, they're there from last year. I know I know my uh, SQL Alchemy talk from last yes, year's PyOhio was up there. They they ported them over from the old Python.miro community site, um, and it basically because there's a company uh, organization that ho- that does all the Python videos and they do all the different conferences. So they go to like DjangoCon, they go to um, EuroPython, um, and they, they do the recordings. And they basically travel with all the gear and everything, and they they host them all together. So one of the beautiful things with the Python community, I'm I'm a big fan of. The, the amount of effort they put into that. So um, hats off to those guys. They had the videos up. You know, it's crazy. It's a three-day conference, and by the third day, you're actually watching some of the videos from the first day, like in your hotel room, you know, because, you know, you didn't get a chance to see it, and they're already up. Very cool. But, yeah, so check out. I've got a blog post on it. Um, I'll put in the show notes. Uh, a lot of people had a lot of stuff on it. It was really good. If you get a chance to go, definitely. It's something that's always worth going to. Um, and uh, PyCon, that's awesome. All right, next up, I ran it. You know, I've been trying to follow Hacker News a little bit more, much to my, you know, dismay, I suppose. <laughs> You're a better man than I. I, I do not oh, go that way. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know what brought it up, but I was kind of like, me, you I know, was seeing a lot of people talk about Hacker News stuff, and people would talk about something. I'd have to go find where that was from, right? I'd hear, right. you know, I see people online going, oh, I can't believe these idiots talking about whatever. And it's like, well, where were they talking about that at? And invariably, it's, it's, it's always Hacker News. And so, I started tracking it, and and so they're really cool things. Some stuff I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And I do run into things a little bit sooner before they get syndicated through the the internet pipes. But there are some things on there where I just shake my head that just that just drive me bonkers. Um, anyways, <laughs> there was a really a really nice quality one recently because there's a a lot of people. I don't know why I seem to be talking a lot more JavaScript and front end stuff lately with people. Um, so I've been doing a lot of it, you know, with Bookie, and that's one of my primary responsibilities with the Launchpad stuff. Is I'm supposed to be one of the JavaScript front end guru guys, and so I love this post that we're going to put in the show notes. Basically, a baseline for front end developers, and really what I like is that he lists like all these tools and ideas and things you need to know to be a quality front end developer. And what I love is that. He puts the developer back in this, right? Notice it doesn't say designer. It doesn't say, you know, flash guy. It it says developer. And so the tools in here are like real developer tools. So he starts talking about actually like getting to know JavaScript, the language, not getting off the idea that, oh, I know jQuery, you know, yeah, whatever. Who cares? Um, (laughs) Learn learn JavaScript. And, you know, he has links and resources about learning it, you know, the, the JavaScript, the good parts and eloquent JavaScript and some other, you know, good blog posts and things. Which I thought, like, this is brilliant. This is exactly what you want to hand to anyone who says, like, oh, I'm a front-end developer. It's like, all right, well, here's my checklist. I want you to run down it. So first, JavaScript, know it well. Second one's Git. Obviously, I'll replace that with Mercurial, whatever your company choice is. Uh, you know, at work, I, I'm using Bazaar. Um, have I, a distributed uh, version control system because, quite frankly, if you don't have it distributed, you're using SVN, uh, you're going to be passing around little trinkets and all that other kind of stuff so that people can commit their code and merge it together in that. And it's like, you know, no. Yeah, These but I mean, pers- coming from a front-end person, though, version control, good. You know, I, a lot of the front-end, at least, you know, through history, it's not always been the best with some of that stuff. It's been considered more programmy than front-end-y, you know, design-y. Um, 
The next thing on the list was a module pattern for JavaScript. And obviously, I'm going to be talking about this one in my talk about one of the reasons why I love UE is their uh, module pattern and uh, their system that works with it, including the combo loader and stuff. And so I think if you're a front-end guy, you're doing JavaScript, you have to know this stuff. That's like, you know, sorry, on the list. You can write JavaScript without it, but, um, you know, it's a lot like... I don't even know. I mean, it's, it's like saying I run Linux, but I've never used the command line. Uh, you know, you're doing it wrong. Um, <clears throat> which brings us to the next item on his list, which was the command line. Um, and so I think, especially because a lot of these people are Mac users and things, that um, you really do need to learn how to use a command line. You're going to use, you know, you're going to get tools out of Homebrew. They're going to be command line tools. You're going to be doing things like uh, generating files or minimizing, minimizing and all that. That's, those are going to be command line steps usually. So I, I love that he's got the command line on here on his little uh, checklist and some stuff to help with that. Um, next up, probably this one's obvious, the browser dev tools. You got to know how to use Firebug or the WebKit developer tools in Chrome and Safari and all that. Um, and learn to use them pretty well, too. Uh, you know, if, if you're like, well, yeah, I can go in there and view my CSS, that, that doesn't count. You got to be able to drop debugger statements. You got to be able to set up watches um, and actually, you know, go through your JavaScript and, and actual, like, you know, debug stuff on there. Really, like, figure out what the heck's going on and why it's broken. I've had to do a lot of that lately. <laughs> Well, and too, any any language, you need to learn the debugger piece of it as well, because you're gonna you're gonna need it at some point. There's only so far that you can go with print statements before you just run out of out of tools. Definitely, this is a hundred percent true. So again, a, a good one, uh, and more just because of thoroughness. Like it should be on there for you need to know them thoroughly, not just oh you got to know where Firebug is. Um, next one on the list was client side templating. And again, as, as I've been doing this with Bookie and stuff more, uh, that's a definite one as well. Um, you know, using something like a uh, mustache or handlebars or jQuery templates or whatever they're called now. And uh, there's, there's a, a ton of them out there. But the idea is that you're not throwing giant blobs of string concatenated HTML in your JavaScript files that you're breaking out the reusable HTML bits and you're calling them and using them. And, um, and, and there's actually some stuff to be able to do client-side templates on the server side as well. A mustache is famous because it supports, it's got implementations in Ruby and uh, Python and other languages so you can use the same template to do your front-end code as your back-end code. Um, we've actually started looking at handlebars, and one of our devs has written a thing called PyBars, um, which is a Python implementation of handlebars that we're actually looking at trying to use to to do to share templates between server-side and client-side. But if you're going to do a front-end guy, templating like, like anything else in the world, eventually things get big enough and nasty enough, you have to break out to templates. All righty, next up is... Doing your CSS with uh, processing tools, so like less or SAS. And as someone who's moved to SAS, I'm a, I have to say I agree. Again, it lets you share bits of CSS and code, and you basically have to do a compile step when you go to deploy. Um, but the, the idea is, is that it makes things easier, more uh, repeatable, easier to debug, um, easier to make a change that is cascades across the entire site and everything. Because your CSS these days in a real app tends to get, you know, gigantic and huge. And so I think everyone should at least have a passing experience with, uh, with either or both of Less and SAS. Um, have you played with either one of those? No, I haven't. Um, I've not written any CSS that's gone much beyond, you know, uh, tinkering a little bit here and there. I guess my question on that is, could couldn't you just uh, make your style sheets a little more robust so that any changes that you do like that or no, no. it doesn't work that way? No, they're giving you, these things are giving you great things like um, they give you mix-ins and variables. So 
you know, like I've got a variable that's um, uh, that's basically called oh, you know, uh, you, you start out by making variables for colors, right? So like, you know, I, I have a red, a green, and a blue, and I can make small tweaks to what that color is. And wherever I said this is bet green, um, it's it just updates itself, right? I, I change right. it. I change it in one place in all instances, whether I'm like you know, because you you try to tie our colors together, right? So you maybe you've got a heading font that's also used on a div border somewhere that might also be used on a link underline somewhere, right? And they're all this one shade of green because you're sticking with your color palette that you selected for your application or your site. Now I decide, you know what? That green is a little bit light on some of these displays. Let me go like darken that up a little bit. When I'm using lesser SAS, I go to that green definition and I change that one color. And when it's compiled again, all the instances of that are replaced. And it's not me doing a find and replace across five CSS files, right? It's, you know, and I may have five SAS files or five less files. Any of them that are pulling in that variable and using it are now all updated to the new green. So it, let me, if, you, if you're doing something, let's say, okay, I wanted to use, um, let's say the client wants a green, mm-hmm. okay, and they use a green color, but you also want to have the link, visited link be, you know, five shades lighter than that. Then you yeah. Can do so there's, okay. in, in SAS, there's actually functions you can use called lighten and darken. And so what you'll see, uh, if you look in the bookie uh, SAS files, you'll actually see that I pick a color and then uh, in certain areas, I'll actually lighten and darken that. So for instance, like when I do a drop shadow on this text, when I don't actually pick a new color for the drop shadow, what I do is I grab the text color and darken it 50% or 25%. And that generates a slightly darker version of the same color the text is for the drop shadow. Ah, Fukui-san. Yeah, so you're starting to see now how like now I go change the, t- the main text color. All my drop shadows are also updated to use a darker version of the new color automatically by recompiling the CSS. And I didn't have to find and replace all the places that that color was used, all the places the drop shadow darkened that color, all the places that borders you know, lighten that color or whatnot. Hover effects are a good one. Um, oftentimes when you hover text, you, you might make it lighter or darker or something, you know, uh, it's very handy for that kind of stuff. So it's something that, again, it took me a little bit of convincing to get into, but now that I have, and I've, I've, I've enjoyed the benefits, it's on the list baseline for front end developers. Uh, next up is a biggie testing and I'm going to talk a lot about this at my UE talk because um, I, I'm completely stereotyping really bad. But so a lot of a lot of uh, developers that jump into JavaScript, that jump into jQuery, don't do any testing at all, and this is bad. Uh, obviously, anytime you start to get large amounts of code in something, it needs to be tested. And so uh, you know, a testing toolkit, whether you're a BDD guy, you're using Jasmine and uh, whatever. If you're a unit test guy, you know, you're using QUnit or um, in my case, I'm using UE test. You know, you got to get into a testing framework for your setup. Next up's a fun one. This is one I'm actually hoping to, to do a talk about re, uh, sometime in the future because I am I have become a huge Make convert, and Make is a really old school, uh, you know, Unixy tool for basically automating. It was, originally, the idea was for automating like building, compiling C files and stuff, <clears throat> but I actually use it for managing my apps. So when I compile my SAS stuff, I've actually got a Make command that's Make CSS that runs. A, a pre-set up uh, function that compiles my CSS for me. When I do testing on my JavaScript, I've actually got a make command where I do make JS test, and it basically opens all the test files and new tabs in my browser for me in one one nice step. Um, 
Same thing for minification of my JavaScript because you're minifying your JavaScript, right? You want to reduce that download time for users. I've got you know, a make.js command that runs through and, and sets up my build directory for me and minimizes my JavaScript and all that. And so it's a really powerful tool. There's some stuff written in JavaScript to do it called Grunt. Um, I mean, there, there's Fabric in Python. There's 110 ways to actually kind of, you know, shave this cat. Um, but you, you should, anything you do twice, you want to start automating it. And if you're starting to use some of these tools, um, you're definitely going to want to, to find some way to automate it. And things like make and Grunt are great ways to do this. Go check it out. Spend a weekend. It's worth the time. You'll save for sure. I'd even say, uh, going back to the command line, even if you can just script it, maybe not necessarily using it, something like make, but if you if you do anything more than once, if you have to give a person a checklist of how to deploy your application, make it a make it a shell script at, at the very least, or make it a make uh, command set. Or something along those lines. Make yeah. it so that so that someone can just say, I need to type this command, and boom, I'm done. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, in, in Bookie, I've got a scripts directory that has a few different, like, you know, uh, things that are scripted that you can run in order to perform steps on it. Um, you know, it, there, there's lots of ways, like I said, to kind of get at it. I think I, I tend to think of things that I run regularly and frequently, and I want someone else to use... I tend to have like in the makes files, the scripts are more, um, so like I've got a script for adding a new user to the system without going through a web interface, right? Um, right. I'm not, not going to create a make command for that. You know, I, I have a, you know, a user management script that will list users and change passwords on users and allow you to create new ones. And it's kind of like an interface to the user setup via script. Um, but like, you know, when you first get clone bookie, you need to create a virtual environment, download Python packages, um, build your JavaScript, which will download the UE library version that you need and stuff. And so these are like very repeated. Everyone's going to have to do them no matter what. Um, and they need to happen in a certain order and they need to happen, you know, if there's an error, you need to know about it right away. So those are, those are all make commands. Um, and what's nice is make commands can chain together really well. So there's like a make install, which runs a JavaScript build step and a CSS build step, which, you know, you may run separately, but whenever you make install, they have to run. And so you can do dependency stuff a lot better than if you have a series of, you know, Python or shell scripts that you keep in a scripts directory. But yeah, I mean, we've all been on projects uh, where there's a sacred text file or a sacred oh, yeah. wiki page where this is how you deploy said application. And it's usually about 20 commands all strung together. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, if, if step 17 blows up, then, you know, all, all hell breaks loose and you need to be, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Automate this. Please automate this. Definitely. And that brings us to the last item. And the last item is uh, tooling. And, and really, the, I think, you know, this is uh, things like code conventions. And uh, the, the particular example here, because it's front-end code stuff, is JS Lint. There's a CSS Lint. Just, um, you know, tools to help you maintain code quality um, and that help keep developers on the same page, even though they're working on different bits of code and all that. And so you definitely you should be using, whether, whether you're, you know, maybe you're not using JS Lint, you're using JS Hint. Um, with an H instead. Um, maybe you're using CSS Lint. Maybe you just got your own custom script that checks to make sure that, you know, no one did funky camel casing of their CSS identifiers or who knows why. But um, you should definitely, if you're on a project, especially, especially multiple developers, is to try to keep your conventions in order. And I've actually got 
Uh, and Bookie on my build server, I run a Jenkins server we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, I actually have builds that just run things like Pep8 and PyLint and JSLint against the code so that I can keep an eye and make sure that I'm, I'm not violating my code conventions that I've decided to follow inadvertently. And, and I can you know go peek at those once in a while and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've gotten a dozen new violations. I should go you know take a quick two minutes and clean those up real fast. So um, there are things you may even just want to actually track and actually put into your build setup as well. So. And most languages have some form of lint uh, command associated Definitely. with them. And you'd be surprised how many bugs and stuff that that kind of finds or, or cleans up. I know mean, one of the things that you know I find a lot of times is, uh, you know, Python developers, when you're working, you'll start adding imports at the top of the file, and then you'll use stuff. And then you'll go back and you'll refactor, and suddenly this import won't be used anymore. Um, or, you know, you'll have some variables that didn't get cleaned out that aren't used anymore. And a lot of these tools can find those for you. And, you know, it's kind of fun. You can go in and, and clean up. Five, and, 10, you know, five, 10, 20 lines of code just by cleaning up stuff that really isn't used anymore. It makes it simpler for the next person to arrive to go, ah, what's this doing? And there's even tools for, uh, for Vim, like Syntactic, which yep. will go through and find all of your unused imports and will find unused variables and stuff like that. Yep, a lot Definitely. of editors support this stuff, and so you want to make sure that those things are turned on in your editor. So speaking of handy tools recently, uh, I've been playing with setting up a Heroku app. Um, and if you don't know Heroku, it's basically it's a software a platform as a service, I think is a technical term. But basically it means that I write an app and I don't care about the server. I just push it to some service and they run it. And they take care of the installation and then all this kind of stuff. And normally you've got to do some tweaks. you got to let them know how stuff works. I found actually Heroku was pretty darn decent to get going as far as letting it know, you know, what I needed. Um, it basically requires you to use pip in a requirements.txt file. And um, my app doesn't need any database access for what I'm playing with. It's just a readable. I'm taking the readable parser bits out of Bookie and putting them in its own service so that it could scale or be tested separately. So the idea is it's kind of like, you know, the uh, um, readable or readability or whatever it's called, where you feed it a URL or you feed it some HTML content and it'll strip it of anything but the main article and, and give you that back. So um, <clears throat> very simple, but it's been great to kind of play with Heroku's setup with it to kind of get it going. And the guys here have done a great job. You can run one, basically one, you know, CPU instance for free on it. Um, and so it's not costing me a dime to test out and play with. And if I ever scale it up, it's as easy as saying, you know, Heroku add workers uh, three, and suddenly I've got four versions of my app running instead of just one. In playing with that, I've also been trying to get stuff running in Jenkins to test more. And one of the hard things I've had is that I've got a, a bunch of JavaScript tests, but running them on a build server is a little bit of a pain because the JavaScript tests run via a browser. And so you need some way to basically you know, run the HTML file that loads the JavaScript, that runs the tests, get the results out of it, and, and get it off to the build server to say, hey, did this work or not? And so one of the guys from the UE team released a tool called Grover, which is a little uh, node uh, package that uses PhantomJS. And PhantomJS is a headless uh, WebKit-based HTML you know, web browser. And so Grover has PhantomJS load up the test files, and then they run, and they have results that come back in the HTML response body. And Grover knows how to parse that then 
and then it supplies back a uh, basically a pass fail um, to Jenkins. So it's it's not perfect because I don't have like my, my pretty you know X unit uh, you know XML file of the test results to see how many tests were run and how many failed and what the fail error or whatever was. But it's great right now that I've got a total smoke test where because sometimes you forget to run the test locally when you commit and when you go to push things and you know stuff breaks. So you want to make sure that whenever you push, that at least the tests are run and if it fails, it jumps an IRC and says, "Hey, dude, you broke it. Go fix it." Um, so very kind of cool to kind of see like the you know here you're actually headlessly running uh, you know JavaScript front end tests uh, and getting your response back. So. Uh, if you're doing any of this kind of stuff, if you're doing, you know, like we said, for front-end developers, testing and automating, um, you should definitely check out the Grover and PhantomJS integration stuff. So since this is basically turning into the JavaScript episode, and I hadn't realized it when I wrote it out, but talking about it, it is becoming true. I wanted to bring up this, there's no way around, this shitstorm uh, about, so uh, Twitter Bootstrap is a preset of CSS, HTML, and stuff to kind of help you bootstrap an application up and running with modern techniques and utilities and a modern look and feel. It looks a lot like Twitter, you know, buttons and form elements and styling and all this kind of stuff. How does it and compare with YUI? Ooh, it, so it's different. I mean, it's it, well. It, YUI is more about giving you tools that you may put together your own bootstrap thing for. Like you may put like together a company-wide app bootstrap. Um, right. Whereas Twitter bootstrap, is it's really meant to be like, here, drop this in your app and then start writing the app around it. And you don't have to worry about it right now, right? Like all your buttons are styled. Whereas like UE gives you tools to do CSS styling or they give you JavaScript to generate buttons. But, you know, you have to go through and figure out how you want your buttons. You know, like it doesn't actually give you... You know, preset uh, preset JavaScript files that automatically give you pre-done buttons right out of the box, right? Right. Does it make makes sense. Yeah. You know, like you know, um, UE supports you know uh, some default you know reset and style guide stuff, whereas like Twitter Bootstrap has you know real typography put in, and and like this is this is not just a reset, but this is like how your app should just look out of the box. Okay. Um, and it saves people, a lot, it saves uh, new people a lot of times. Where, you know, when you know, whenever it is, you want to start an app. Like, all right, I want an app that's going to process text and, and read it back to you. Well, I've got to figure out, like, okay, what are my fonts going to be? How much? What's the page width? Well, I need some idea of navigation buttons and all this kind of stuff. And and Twitter Bootstrap would let me forget all that and get right to the part of the app that I'm writing, just the uh, you know the the text parsing bit and spitting it back out on the page, and. <clears throat> As long as you don't mind your app looking like everybody else's app, because Twitter bootstraps become really, really popular. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, in in a way, it's a bit like jQuery, where you don't real. It it gives you all the good widgets and that, and plus it also gives you some look and feel to go along with it. And that's really what it is. It's about look and feel, right? So it's it's set up to be like a responsive design out of the box. It, it's set up that the navigation has JavaScript, so that when you get to a, a small screen, the navigation buttons collapse into one button that's a drop-down. Okay. Right? So it's giving you a lot of moving parts that you would have to create yourself, right? Anyway, so someone ran a, the JS min tool against it and had a problem because there's a place in there where that doesn't use a semicolon to end a line of JavaScript, which te technically, technically... <laughs> You do not require you're not required to end every line in JavaScript with a semicolon. It's just considered good practice. So 
someone then went and said, you know, put a put a, basically a bug on Bootstrap that says, hey, there's this bug. I can't run JSMint on it or it breaks. Their response was, well, then JSMint is broken. Go file a bug with them, right? JSMint should be able to handle this code situation without breaking, which, of course, got the JSMint author, who's actually like a really famous, you know, Douglas Crockford, king of JavaScript, to reply, this code is retarded. Uh, it, I'm, I'm completely, you know... Uh, paraphrasing. Paraphrasing here. <laughs> um, I've actually got the... Let me see. One of these tabs here has the actual... This is insane. That is insanely stupid quote. Code is the quote. Sorry. Anyways, which just set everyone off. Because one of the things... And I, and I, I shook my head at this too. So recently Google... Uh, not Google. GitHub released their style guides for various languages. And in their JavaScript style guide... They actually specify not ending lines with semicolons that don't require it. And it made a lot of us kind of shake our head and go, oh, come on, you're kidding me. Um, it's basically everyone at this point. Well, just, it, just, it, it just, yeah. it, it's just become convention that you end your stuff in semicolons. And so we learned the, this with C, though. I mean, there are instances in C where you don't necessarily have to put semicolons, you don't have to put the braces in that. And when when your code changes, it breaks, and then you you have both pieces. It's just come on. Yeah. So th there's actually a little bit of a, a mini movement going on. It seems to kind of work backwards on this. You know, ending your stuff in semicolons, uh, which to me I just shake my head because you know part of getting into JavaScript was learning kind of like you know the uh, you know a little bit of a little bit of convention and style guide kind of thing that just people just kind of follow. And one of the things I've always loved about Python is it's got this PEP8 standard. And PEP8 basically says, like, how you end your lines, how, you know, how you, you know, do your parens and all this. And I don't agree with everything in PEP8. Like, if I had to choose my way, I would not do everything the exact way PEP8 does. But I've come to... long lines. I would do that in a heartbeat. No. Long line. <laughs> long line people need to go figure it out. I don't know. Go on sabbatical, figure it out. I don't know what... <laughs> Come back writing 80 lines. I'm sorry. Uh, technically, you set your you set your editor for 79. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> and and so basically, I've come around and gone. Okay, you know what? Like the fact that that the whole language. I don't care what project it is. I don't have to stop and figure out. Do they put spaces around their equals in this situation or that situation? I just know. Look, Pepe, right? I learned a set of rules, and now anytime I see Python. I just, I, I, my fingers are trained. I automatically spit out PEP8 code. You know, I run PEP8 on my build server against my my code, but it's a kind of thing like for every 100 lines of code I add, if I have three PEP8 violations, then I was probably on this glass of wine that I'm drinking now. And that's why it came out. Um, and <laughs> so I, I, I just, you know, I appreciate the fact that after the initial hurdle, hurdle of learning it, which, let's face it, I'm all for things that require learning hurdles. See Vim, see Tiling Window Manager, see you know command line tools, whatever. Um, that I enjoy the world I live in now. And I've done the same thing with JavaScript, right? I've basically gone through and read the, the you know, I, I, I know that basically if I put a semicolon here, I will never have a problem. It's just convention. Does it have to be there? No. Am I a Ruby developer? No. I'm not, you know, worrying about adding a semicolon there. I don't care. Um, you know, the whole Ruby stuff with like, well, you can put parens or not put parens. It's all optional all up in the air. Like I would just like, just pick one. Either put the parens or don't put the parens, but just, you know, just pick one. This whole like, it could be this or it could be that, you know. I don't need quantum state style guidelines here, you know. Uh, it's either a one or it's a zero, damn it. Um, 
so I, I find the whole discussion kind of intriguing. I, I, it's kind of funny to see this little mini movement going on in the JavaScript land. I did want to take a second, though, to compare it to kind of Pep8 and the, the guidelines that people have out there and realize, you know, not everything in those guidelines are required for sure. Um, but they are just freaking handy. There was recently a, a few series of posts on Planet Python where a guy was like, hey, someone railed against me about, you know, not being Pep8 compliant on my code. W- what do you guys think? And... Um, he was expecting everyone to be like, yeah, I don't do that either. But he, he got a surprising number of people that were like, yeah, Pep8 or, or else kind of thing. Or uh, that usually at bare minimum, usually what it is, it's Pep8 because it's good for everyone to be on the same page, even if you don't agree. And so <clears throat> over like three posts, he like was trying to get feedback and he got a lot of good comments. And finally, his last post was, you know what, you guys convinced me. Um, he went through and he pep date like his three projects or whatever he had up and and says, all right, I'm I'm on board. Like I don't agree with all of it, but you know you've made me see the light that it's worthwhile to all share a common you know set of you know guidelines here. So I really think I would love to see that in the JavaScript world. Um, I think it's a shame that this I mean this this ticket on GitHub has just turned into um, you know an insanely. Well, the, the funny thing is that it's still going. And yeah, as, as we're recording, there was a comment about it an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, this is fairly recent. This was just came up a day ago or two days ago that the bug was opened and the feedback started coming in today, really. And and you know, obviously, Douglas Crockford didn't help things by saying this is insanely stupid code. I am not going to dumb down JS Min for this case. Um, it, it didn't make any friends with that that statement. So, I mean, you know, obviously then the people came out of the woodwork to, to be like, look, this is legitimate JavaScript. If your tool doesn't work with legitimate JavaScript, you're doing it wrong. Um, cause it's hard to tell Douglas Crawford that he's using JavaScript wrong, but Hey, people want to make like the telling, argument. <laughs> it's kind of like telling, uh, Kiernigan or, or Dennis Ritchie, God rest his soul, you know, that they're doing C wrong, but yeah, it's it makes for interesting discussion. If you're really bored and want to waste a few hours, uh, we'll put the link to the 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 uh, issue in uh, in the show notes. <laughs> but I'm curious. I really would like to get some feedback from you guys on what do you guys think. How would you where do you guys stand on code conventions and and the people that have negative feedback? Do you work with other developers? I think that's what. Really- <laughs> No, no, I'm serious, though. When it's just you writing code for yourself, you do things your way. You're the man, you're it, right? But as soon as you start to have to work with other developers and they hand you code that you look at and go, ah, I can't even look at this because the fact that it's, like, written this way makes my eyeballs bleed, Um, which – I have now. Like I, the guy at Coffee House was like, you know, hey, uh, my Python's not that great. And I thought, oh, I'll take a look at it. And I couldn't get past the fact that, like, how it was written, like that he had imports all over, and that he was, you know, camel casing things, and that um, that the functions right, weren't. I, it just, I, I couldn't get past like the way the code was put on the in the editor enough to be like, oh, hey, here's a bug in your code. Um, and so, admittedly, I'm, he's not a Python developer. Too. No, 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 at all. No, he's coming from PHP land and stuff. So he's got a lot. I mean, it looked like PHP written in Python. It was it was actually kind of funny because I I was that guy one day, right? I, I yeah. came from PHP to Python. So I've I've completely years ago. I that was me. I understand, you know. But I'm curious about the people that are anti style guide. If you do work with other developers and and not just give them your code, but you get their code. And at some point, you guys all sit down at lunch and go, all right, look, guys, we got to figure this out. Because if I get one more person doing, like, if blocks without, you know, you know, without proper indentation, I'm going to shoot somebody. Um, you know, I'm curious. And also send us your stories, too, of, uh, of code that you have seen that looks like badly formatted Pascal filtered through Perl written in Python as my 
code tends to be. <clears throat> All right, and you can send that to feedback at logocast.net. Toys, 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 toys. I like toys. Uh, no, since we've been a while, I've gotten a few toys. I'm actually cutting it down to just two. So I'll talk about the you know, two that I've got here. Um, the most recent item is that um, I, I went to reinstall my laptop. And I, my, my external backup drive here, my 500 gig guy, was actually very close to maxed out. I had no space. So I had to go through and start cleaning out stuff out of previous backups in order to uh, to make room for it. And I decided, ah, screw that. I'm, I'm deleting stuff that I might care about one day. So I actually just copied it to the desktop. I backed up my laptop to the desktop. It went, well, I really need a better backup solution. And there's recently been a lot of talk at work about uh, NAS devices. And I thought, you know, I really should get a NAS device. Because the one time I tried to set up my, my desktop, I had like five uh, 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 SATA drives in there doing software raid and all that. But the problem is that I use this desktop. So when I want to do a reinstall, I get real nervous about my backup data integrity and stuff. And, you know, it, it just got to be a mess. You know, which drive am I installing to? And, and oh, it's down. So my backups aren't running for my laptop because I installed an alpha version of something and now it's toast. And you're constantly having to load up the alternate install because all of the, like in, in Ubuntu, it does not understand raid out of the box. No, right. Yeah, use an alternate install. And the fun thing I had with this was that um, I was installing from USB, and the USB port would shift the drive letters of all the internal drives. And so because I had five, you know, SATA drives in there or whatever, that were SDA, you know, uh, SDA, B, C, D, E or whatever. And then you'd stick in a USB device to do an install, and they'd all shift a letter. And not all of them, right, but like three of them would. And so I had to be very paranoid about like which one I installed to because like what I had several installs that went bad because I installed and I picked the drive. All right, you're the master. You get the OS. Everything else is going to go off of the slash backup partition I'm creating. That's the RAID four disks. Um, but then when I pulled the USB stick out, the next boot, that drive would be a different letter. And so Grub would come up and be like, hey, I can't find it. Right. Like um, yeah. this, this doesn't work at all. I'd have to manually like figure out, like, all right, which drive did I go to? What letter did it change to edit my grub config to boot off of the drive that I did install? To, you know, it's just it's too fragile. So I really wanted, you know, what? I want something I can throw discs in and just not worry about it. So I got uh, I, I wasn't willing to spend enough money to buy a new computer on this. So I got a Synology DS212J. So this is a two drive little box that I can fit up in my little rack I've got hanging on my wall here, a little mini rack. And um, so I got two, two gig, uh, two, sorry, two terabyte drives in RAID 1 mirror uh, on that thing. And um, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a cool little box. It's got a little web interface. It has like little, like a full desktop. You got like a, you know, start button kind of thing and you can pull up all the, it's got apps you can install into it and all that crap. Um, End of the day, I really just want it to like sit and be a pretty backup box, and it's got lights on the front of it. And if a, a disc goes bad, the light color changes, so I can see visually. Oh, look, that one's you know broke. Um, whereas I didn't always like you know remember to set up the the MDADM email notification stuff on the desktop, and so you know a disc could go bad, and it did, and I didn't realize it until I was like, man, this machine's really kind of slow, and that's because it was running in RAID degraded mode. 
um, which, which is, is fun. Which is well, yeah, it's bad, right? Because then now I've got I've got um, five drives. I'm trying to figure out which one's which one, so I can replace the one that's bad but not affect the other one. Because if I lose one more drive, then basically, you know, my stuff's toast. Um, again, another reason why I like the whole idea of the nice dedicated NAS device. So my only complaint is that, and it's kind of a, a, a yay nay. Um, the yay part is that it's an Atom processor. So it's kind of cool. Linux on Atom, it's very low wattage. Um, the tests from reviews are like 15 watts idle, 17 busy. And you're like, wow, I didn't really fire up a whole lot. Um, and that's the nay uh, because the thing has this Atom processor and doesn't really you know, crank up its, its smarts very well. Um, I'm using it to R-Sync off my machines. I don't want to use the built-in software tool stuff. I want to actually just R-Sync off of Linux and put it in a cron job and call it a day. And um, R-Sync is very CPU heavy, and this Atom processor does not like it. So all the tests online, all the reviews say, yeah, this thing will push 30 megabytes a second in backups, except I can't get it over five and a half. Yeah, and so, they're probably using fiber or all this other kind of stuff. To... I mean, no, it's it's got to be. It's, you know, they probably have you know um, you know the network set up. It's gig, you know probably gigabit you know, jumbo frames. They're not using R sync. They're using whatever you know probably some low CPU usage. You know, I don't know uh, SFTP or something. I don't know what they're using for their tests. They all came off of the Windows machines and stuff. So um, so that was that was a bummer because it took me basically a week to get my old USB external drive backed off my desktop initial backup, my laptop initial backup. Uh, and so it, it really did take a while to get all that going at five megs a second um, compared to the 30 that you know should have been there. Basically, you figure if it was going to take one day to do, it'd take me you know six times that, so six days to do. Um, so here's a question. You said it's a two-drive enclosure? Yep. Does it do RAID on that enclosure? Or? Yep. Yeah, it okay. does. It does raid one, you know, raid one, or it'll do raid one or zero basically on it. Um, right. They have their own custom, you know, special raid thing. I'm like, no, nah, just just mirror. I just want a mirror, and it's got a it's got an individual light, little blinky light on the front of it that shows access. And if that light changes color, then that disc is bad. Um, and so it should be nice and blatantly obvious. Like, oh, instead of a green blinky light, I've got a big orange light now. Um, I need to get that drive replaced right away, kind of thing. Does it have a slide-out trays as well? Yeah. So, well, no, basically the thing comes apart, right? So it's, it's not a hot swap or anything. You basically okay. have to shut it down and, and take two screws out. And I mean, it's a, the nice thing is that it's a nice little enclosure. It's, it's not that big. It's a, uh, I don't know what to compare it to, I guess. A couple of, a couple of hardbacks probably, you know, side by side. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I mean, once I got over the crankiness with it taking forever to back up, I'm actually kind of happy with it. Now that it's sitting on a shelf and it's invisible, and I've got my hourly cron jobs running for my lap, my laptop and my desktop, and I just don't notice that they run. You know, they fire off, and if they can find the guy on the internal network, they run. If they don't, they die out, right? So, um, and the incrementals are, are small enough because I'm running it hourly. Um, so really, the worst case is I'm gone for a day, and I come back, and it's got a, a day to catch up with, basically. So. Um, the next thing is I, uh, I took my keyboard geekiness to the whole, I don't know, I consider this the end of the road level. I can't imagine going further than this. And I picked up a Kinesis Advantage USB keyboard. And You're this... in left field on a football field, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I, I actually, uh, I've gotten a little bit used to it. It's, I think if my hands were a little bit bigger, I'd be a lot happier with it. Um, but 
the nice the thing that's awesome with this, right? So first, it's like 3D ergonomic keyboard contour. The idea is you're never supposed to move your hands, basically. You can reach any key with your palms, like basically on the palm rests. You can reach every key. It's all contoured. And, you know, the, your middle finger's longer, so those keys are further away from you. They're contoured down and away from you a little bit so that, you know, it's all nice and, and really kind of cool. Um, the thing that I've actually loved about it most, and, I, and I'm almost tempted to, like, look around for other keyboards that will do this in a normal fashion because I'd love to have, like, a little travel one or whatnot – is I tend to remap a bunch of keys um, to, to my daily life. Like, you know what? I set control at caps lock. I oftentimes map around with um, uh, some of the other keys to kind of, you know, just move things where I want them. This in particular, because it's got these, like, set of keys that are thumb-controlled, rather than, like, a giant space bar, you've actually got, like, space, delete, all uh, meta key, home and end and all that at your thumbs. And I found that as I was tweaking things, the keys I wanted to use more often, I wanted to kind of make them more convenient to hit. And you can program your keys on the keyboard itself. Like it's got hardware programming support. Nice. So when I remap where the delete key is on the keyboard with its little tools, its program tool, the OS doesn't – I don't have to worry about X mod map and, you know, dot, you know, whatever settings on the OS. I don't have to worry about the, you know – setting, you know, swapping caps lock and, and control in your Gconf keyboard layout kind of stuff. I just do it on the keyboard itself and it's done. And so what's awesome is that, you know, it's reduced my OS modifications. I have to worry about keeping up to date and synchronizing. Um, but the other thing is that if I take this keyboard onto some other machine, it's already set up the way I like it. And I don't have to worry about tweaking somebody else's machines. I'm almost like, you know, I'd love to have like a little portable keyboard like this, like a happy hacker that was, you know, I could program on the hardware like this uh, and then just keep it, like, keep it in my backpack, you know. <laughs> What's that? You want me to take a look at your code, Craig? Here, whip out my keyboard so that I can hack on your laptop for a minute. And uh, let me check out that code. Uh, <laughs> I think that'd <laughs> well, be especially awesome. since I use the Apple keyboards that you absolutely hate. Oh, I still oh, don't my. understand. You're, you're, you're confused. But yeah, so if you're into full-out keyboard geekery, uh, definitely check it out. Um, if you just want to chat keyboards, you let me know. I, I, I'm a keyboard junkie. Fetishist, more like it. Hey, I use them. <laughs> They're functional. That's what I tell myself. So you've got a toy on the toy uh, the toy list. I do. I do. Uh, I have become a huge Logitech Squeezebox fan, so much so that I've done several presentations uh, for local groups on the Logitech squeeze box. And what is so cool about it is that it is not only an internet enabled radio, but it's also a fully open source accessible, uh, radio platform, uh, music platform. What? Yes. It's fully open source. So you can get the server code and take a look at it. It's all written in Perl. You can SSH into the radio itself and take a look at the insides of it. They actively encourage you to do so, even in the MOTD. Uh, so when you SSH into it, it'll come up and say, you know, hot. It, it comes up with this stern warning that if you if you screw it up, you'll have to listen to bad music. And then they say, ha ha, only kidding. You can change anything and reset it uh, by just you know hitting a couple keys on boot up, and, and it'll reflash from uh, it'll it'll reset itself from the firmware. So it's also uh, accepts different protocols as well. So if you got um, XPL, which is a power line um, over TCP/IP, sort of like X10, mm -hmm. you can send commands to it that way. It has a command line interface. So if you tell them that to port 9090 on your server, you can uh, act uh, use it that way. 
It has an awesome web interface. It uses all of the supported music formats that are not DRM encrypted. So we've got stuff like FLAC, AUG, MP3, WMA, AAC, non-DRM. Uh, it'll work with those. It has all these different music services that it'll work with, like Spotify, Pandora, Sirius XM, if oh. you pay for radio. Cool. Uh, BBC iPlayer. Tune-in support. It's got shout, uh, shoutcast support as well. So if you, you if you listen to radio, it'll show you all the local radio stations that are out there. Uh, it is a fantastic device, a fantastic ecosystem. I've got two hardware units here. I've got the Squeezebox uh, radio, and I've got the old Squeezebox Classic as well. The and classic. The Squeezebox Classic. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. It's kind of neat. It's got a little fluorescent display on it that's dot matrix addressable. So if you wanted to put text on there, you could. Ah, very Um, funny. And on top of it, as if that weren't enough, there are also software clients that are available for it. So you've got the Squeeze Slave, uh, which is a NCurses-based software player, which I use via SSH tunnel uh, at work. I have it set so that it'll transcode down to 128 kilobits per second, so it won't, you know, take up all the bandwidth of work and or my home machine. Or there's a Java player called uh, Soft Squeeze, which will uh, emulate a Squeezebox player. Or there's ones for the iPhone, the Android. Um, I think there's a, another one as well. There's uh, Logitech has their own Squeeze Play, which is actually the OS that runs on the Squeezebox Radio and Squeezebox Touch that you can run in Windows, Linux, and or Macintosh. And again, all open source. Yeah, I've got to get one of these things. My little Grace radio is one of the few lemons in life I've ever purchased, and I'm, I'm starting to get jealous of your, your radio hotness you've got going on there. Come to the OSS side. It even says, when you boot it up, it says, free your music. Man, that's kind of crazy. I don't know why I don't picture like Logitech in that light well, that's because at they, all. They bought... Uh, slim devices. So this is, that is a what company. It is? That, yeah, okay. this is a company that really had an open platform, that, and Logitech has taken it and run with it. So the Logitech uh, was responsible, I think, for the Squeezebox Radio, okay. which actually is a Linux box. It's an ARM-based Linux machine. Yeah, as well as the, the Touch, it's also ARM-based as well. Well, that's. I mean, that's cool. A major props to them for that. Um, I've just. I don't know why. I just keep having my head like I have such a hard time thinking open and Logitech, and and I guess I don't have any no, reason no. that I can point to. But um, I guess maybe just as a Linux user, like their their keyboards and crap never end up working out of the box or something. I don't know. Well, you have to have special drivers in order to get all of the special yeah. features, like yeah, the gaming keyboards. Right. You have to have special stuff in order to get to the LCD display on there. But. Right. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. But that's so that's very cool. I'm I'm glad that you're a fan of that stuff. And uh, yeah, I've definitely seen that you've been giving this presentation around. Like, I think, are you getting like sales credits for this or anything? <laughs> no, I, should, I I I asked them for some coupons in that, and I gave out some coupons over at one of the meetings that I was at. Mm. So, but yeah, they they seem to be really really cool about open sourcing all this stuff and keeping it open and letting people play with it. And I mean, they've got all the all the protocols are documented. Documented not on some you know remote little site, but actually in the help, they have documentation for advanced users on a lot of this stuff. So major props to Logitech. Very very cool.
got to wrap this thing up. So let's hit the final segment. Let's talk about books. So <clears throat> I've got a few because I've been reading a bunch of stuff lately. Um, obviously, like, I started becoming a big make convert. And so O'Reilly's got a book called Managing Projects with GNU Make, which has helped me a ton because you go out there and you can find lots of how-tos, but like it actually sat down and went through like the reasoning behind some of the stuff and like how it's meant to work. And once you kind of get that in your head a little bit, it's like, oh, lights start to click off and all that. And it helps you like hit the next plateau where you're like, I know this should work, but I can't figure out how the hell to make it work. And then you've got to go back and ask for help again. But for it helps you definitely through that first stage for sure. Um, good book. Uh, I also picked up on a whim because O'Reilly had a deal on it, an introduction to Tornado, which is a uh, asynchronous Python web framework. Uh, comes out of, I think it was FriendFeed, which Facebook bought or something like that. Um, or maybe it's out of Facebook itself. Uh, and so I was, I, I wanted to play around with it a little bit just because I saw a talk on their IO loop at PyCon. And um, I... I I'm using that for this booky readable thing I'm putting on Heroku. So, I, I, you know, it fetches external URLs. And the idea is that you can you can do things asynchronously where you have one worker who basically says, all right, system, go fetch this, uh, you know, URL of content. And when you get the response, give it back to me. But until then, I'm going to go work on this next guy's request. So you can actually do more work in, in with uh, – with less overhead because you're not waiting around for people to come back and, and give you things from remote systems. And so that's been kind of cool. It's pretty decent. Um, the big thing with the book is it's, it is an introduction. It's not a very thorough, you know, like super example thing. Um, it's good to get started, but I found it really broke down. Like I'm, I'm at where I'm trying to write tests for things. And because it's async, you kind of have a lot of nuances to how things work. Um, it didn't have a ton on the whole asynchronous bit, which is kind of a shame because that's really what it's meant for. So, you know, if you're going to write about Tornado, you really should be, you know, singing the praises of the async stuff from beginning to end. And it really didn't, um, which means that I've had to hit a lot more follow-up documentation and blog posts and stuff, which isn't horrible. But just, you know, just be aware of if you get the book, it is just a beginner intro kind of thing. So they didn't go too far depth into the asynchronous, how why you would want to do this? Now, well, there, there's a chapter on it that kind of goes why you want to do this and stuff, but not into like how it actually works and things. And, and you know, it's so there isn't a ton about the IO loop. And there's like, hey, look, here, there's, here's how you can do this. And let's let's they have like a little sample app that they kind of build and work with throughout the book. And, and so it was mainly like about implementing one feature in the sample app. It wasn't as thorough as, you know. If if my thing has got like a big selling point, you know what? I'm gonna make sure that like throughout the book, I try to point it out and make sure that you walk away going like, you know what? This is awesome for the selling point. And you finish the book, and you would think, oh, tornado, cute web framework. You know, I could use that for something. You don't walk away from the book going like, holy crap! If I need to do anything asynchronous, you know, this is the thing I need to go reach for. You know, so so it's not a life changer. The book isn't. No, I mean, and Tornado's not either, right? I mean, there, there's lots of ways to get around these things these days. Um, but I, I wanted to tinker something different, something kind of. What's nice is that it's, you know, pip install Tornado. It's it's very light. So for putting it on Heroku, I'd have to worry about a ton of dependencies and stuff. It's like, you know, what I want to run it on, you know, uh, Heroku. I want Tornado to be installed. They said sure thing, and um, it, so it was really light to kind of get up and going on there. And the asynchronous thing seems to kind of work okay. So uh, it, it's been kind of fun. And then finally, I see my last book is actually on both of our lists. And uh, Pragmatic Programmers put out a book called something like TMUX, you know, Learning to Navigate with the Keyboard or something like that. Um, and this was really good because I've, I've tinkered with TMUX, 
But one thing I haven't done a ton of is scripting with Tmux, and the book has a great section on scripting and using it to kind of automate stuff. And I thought that was the huge win I took away, besides getting a pretty decent Tmux config setup that had a few nifty features I didn't have before. What would you think of that one? I really like this book. First off, it's a really quick read. It's only 82 pages. Yeah. Uh, the full title is Tmux, Productive Mouse-Free Development. And, I, you know, I, I too have played around a little bit with Tmux, but I didn't really understand how much Tmux could do. And this was a really good introduction to all of the really powerful things that you can do with Tmux. And it, it really, it, it focuses on keeping your hands on the home row, keeping your hands off of the mouse, and allowing you to develop in a clean and efficient way uh, between, you know, something like Vim and then moving back over to a shell or something like that to do the rest of your stuff, moving between Windows. Uh, it's a it's an it's a very good book. Um, highly recommended for anyone who's coming from a GNU screen uh, type environment or who wants to learn more about what this awesomeness that is Tmux is. What I love is that this is really getting pushed. I think the guys that wrote this book are Mac users, and so yes. I love it when the Mac users who are like my mortal enemies for the most part kind of like. <laughs> Like, when we see eye-to-eye on stuff, you know you've hit, like, good stuff, right? Like, all right. If even the Mac guys are going, like, yeah, this too much stuff is cool. Doing all this, you know, command line stuff is awesome. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm glad you guys finally saw the light. Now let's move on and do some, you know, let's grant some other things. But um, I, I don't know. I always find it entertaining when the, when the Mac users are pushing the same drugs that I'm pushing. So, uh, And all the examples are on the Macintosh as well, which I found touching. Yeah, like I said, they're Mac guys, but, you know, hey, even guys who like pretty little window borders or whatever the heck can appreciate powerful, awesome command line tools, and I uh, I dig that. I dig that a lot. So definitely uh, check it out. It's it's not too pricey. Uh, like I said, there are things in there that I just didn't see when looking at the man pages and stuff, um, and it's the kind of thing you finish, and then, like, I immediately was like, oh, man, like, I've got to go start hacking on my, you know, tmux.com file, and uh, I, want, you know, I bet you if I could script this thing now, so I've got this thing now whenever I go to work on Launchpad where it, like, you know, jumps to the directory and it uh, starts building a make, uh, runs a make uh, command in the background on like the third window while the other two windows are ready to go for editing code and stuff and you know you can really kind of go kind of a uh, kind of fun and crazy automating and scripting stuff with tmux and one of the other books that i i put on here uh just just in the theme of the javascriptness that was going on in here is the <laughs> little book of coffee script now coffee script has been gaining a lot of popularity because it's it to me it's been a lot of uh, it's it's the cleaned up version of JavaScript where you don't have to worry about the semicolons it just doesn't care it doesn't have them so uh, it's a quick read um, I'm not sure if I'm going to use a lot of coffee script in the future but if I am going to use some coffee script I, I would go to this book uh, for for helping me along the path. I like I said, I skimmed through it. I didn't actually put any of the code to to practical use or anything like that, but I kinda like how CoffeeScript interprets JavaScript. And I know you're you're giving me that look. And I, <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah. So I'm I, I don't know. CoffeeScript it uh it conflicts with me. Um I also read that book. Uh, you know, again, I got it O'Reilly had a deal or whatever, and I checked it out. And so um, I read it on the way out to PyCon. So I was in a very Python mood when I read it. Um, it's the Rubification of JavaScript, very you know, turn it very Ruby-like, which um, you know that always 
gets my my shoulder blades itching a little bit there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, I I'm trying to keep an open mind with it. I don't tend to like things that compile to other things. And I know I just got through selling less uh, less than SAS, but um, the thing is that they look and operate much like CSS. It's not it's not so different, and so. And CoffeeScript really doesn't operate that much differently from oh, JavaScript, it does, it does, but it, it does. does. The yeah. thing is, is that the, the problem I have is that is that people don't learn JavaScript already, and they want to learn CoffeeScript, and and they don't know the JavaScript part underneath, and, and it's just a bad recipe. You know, when people don't know the tools they're using, they're they're insulated by layers of of safety nets or whatever that then fall apart and very you know inevitably they fall apart and uh, and then but, they ask stupid questions like how do i do addition and jack and jQuery? oh god don't yeah let's not bring that back <laughs> up. it's late man i'm gonna go to bed and have just cry myself to sleep um <laughs> no so but to be honest the, the book was the book was pretty good i i went through it um it 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 did make me want to try to write something in some coffee script. So I've got on my to-do list to find something small that if I end up rewriting it, isn't going to cost me, you know, days of work because I've, I've got a lot to do. I don't have time to rewrite stuff at this point, really. Um, but I do want to give it a shot because I want to see how it feels to actually use versus the reading and the blog posts and all this stuff. Um, I, I will say that, you know, that GitHub JavaScript style guidelines, I love the first bullet point is write new JavaScript in coffee script. So, um, that's in their coding uh, style guide for JavaScript is don't write JavaScript. Um, <laughs> so I, I find that amusing. Um, so I don't know. I, it's it's definitely good. Uh, the book's good. You should definitely check it out. If you're curious about CoffeeScript, it's good to check out. It will probably leave you like you were when you went in, curious about JavaScript but, or CoffeeScript, but you know more now and are ready to actually give it a try on some on some real code somewhere. And so I'll be curious to see what others think of that, and um, and I'll, I'll be curious to see where I'm at. If I if I can find something to, to hack on it with, um, you know, I'll I'll give it a shot, and I'll let you guys know what I what I end up at. Whether it's like, oh, this is awesome, like SAS. I kind of went in reluctantly, but after I tried it, I was like, oh, this is awesome. So maybe CoffeeScript will be that way. I don't know. Just keep an open mind. I try, I try, I try to be an educated hater, not just a flat hater. <laughs> yeah alright I think that's going to bring this to a close thank you so much for spending your time with us as we thanks for coming back yeah as we kill off thanks an episode thanks for us from your podcast feeds <laughs> you just forgot we were there let's be honest <laughs> and that brings to a close another localcast.net I'm your host Rick Harding with I'm Craig Maloney see ya <laughs>